the Art of Leadership Network. Well, welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in leadership. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, this is going to be a really interesting episode. I have been thinking a lot about social media over the last few years, and I read a book. It was recommended by Tim Keller called Breaking the Social Media Prism. Reached out to the author, who's a professor at Duke, Chris Bale, and well, I'm going to bring you that conversation because so many of my assumptions about social media got popped. I'm like, well, wrong about that. Yep, wrong about that. And uh, I kind of enjoy that. So anyway, hey, today's episode is brought to you by Belay. You can get your free copy of Belay's latest book, Lead Anyone From Anywhere, by texting the word Carrie, my name, to 55123. That's C-A-R-E-Y to 55123. And by Brushfire. Did you know that 30,000 plus events use Brushfire every year? And if you want to be one of them, you'll get a $500 credit toward your first event. Just go to brushfire.com slash carry. So Chris Bale and I are going to talk about the truth about algorithms. Um, yeah, you know, they distort less than I thought. And echo chambers. I was kind of wrong on that one too. But I was probably right on the miserable social life of internet trolls. We talk about that. And how 6% of users generate 73% of the extreme content that you see online. It's crazy what I learned. And Chris has done a lot of quantitative and qualitative research for this. He is a Duke University professor, a professor of sociology and public policy at Duke University, where he directs the Polarization Lab. He has studied political tribalism, extremism, and social psychology to use data from social media and tools from the emerging field of computational and social science. So this guy knows what he's talking about, and he was a great interview. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. If you do, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, share it online with your friends, tag me. I'm Kerry Newhoff on Instagram, C. Newhoff on most other platforms, and let us know, and my team or I will shout you out. And uh, thank you so much for doing all the sharing and getting the word out. Because you do that, we can continue to do this. And we also choose our partners really carefully. One of my favorite organizations is Belay. And Belay has done uh, virtual staffing now for over a decade. And they know that social media used to be easy enough to manage on your own. You do a simple tweet or a follow or, you know, put some icons in the footer of your church website. But not anymore because social media is moving at the speed of life. And if your church is growing, it may be time to call in some help. So if you need a plan for social media to reach your ideal audience and you want a monthly analysis and continual feedback loop to help you reach your social goals, a Belay social media manager can handle all of that for you. And thankfully, our friends at Belay, the incredible organization revolutionizing productivity with social media managers, virtual assistants, bookkeepers, and website specialists for growing churches have the right virtual specialist to serve you. Their first client was a pastor. They get the church. And to help you get started, Belay is offering their latest book, Lead Anyone From Anywhere, for free. All you have to do is text the word Carry C-A-R-E-Y, my name, to 55123. And you'll learn all about the skills you need to lead a hybrid team. With a hybrid team, productivity doesn't have to wane. So get your free copy of Belay's latest book, Lead Anyone From Anywhere, by texting the word Carrie to 55123. And the good news is events are back and Brushfire wants to help you launch yours. Brushfire offers an all-in-one event management platform that gives you the features you need 
for a reasonable price. We've used them with some of our events and they have been such a help. Whether you need seamless ticketing and registration, custom event pages, virtual event solutions, an attendee app for your event, or anything in between, Brushfire is gonna help you put on a picture-perfect event. Best of all, the platform is easy to use for everyone, so you don't need a tech whiz on your team and you will launch your event in minutes. Brushfire has built hundreds of partnerships with churches and ministries around the world since 2003. Their team is waiting for you, so join the 30,000 plus events that use Brushfire every single year. Podcast listeners, you get a $500 credit toward your first event, so get your exclusive deal today. Simply go to brushfire.com slash carry, that's brushfire.com slash C-A-R-E-Y. And now, my conversation with Duke University professor Chris Bale. Chris, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So I read your book. For those of you who are watching, it's called uh, Breaking the Social Media Prism. thought it was really interesting. And you blew apart some of my favorite pet theories about social media, which I thought was fantastic. Um, can you explain, just for people who aren't familiar with your work or the book, what your basic thesis is? And maybe also go into the research methods you used as well, because they're pretty extensive. First of all, thanks for all the kind words. But yeah, I think, you know, all of us are searching for some easy answers, right? You know, and I would love to tell you that there's a simple solution um, that just involves tweaking Facebook source code, or maybe it involves doing a slightly better job on, say, misinformation or content moderation. But what the research uh, that, you know, my colleagues and I have done is starting to bear out is that, you know, the root problem is actually us, the Mm. social media users. You know, we hear about echo chambers, we hear about Russia, we hear about algorithms radicalizing us. And, you know, there's some evidence that these things might matter, but only at the margins. And for most people, it seems to be uh, that social media is just creating perverse incentives for people who are, say, marginalized or maybe they're social outcasts to find a kind of pseudo celebrity um, that, that has really terrible consequences for the rest of us. Hmm. Yeah, there, there were a couple of things in there, and that, that's a really good uh, and short thesis uh, statement that I would definitely want to unpack. Can we talk about your research methods? Because some people just look at a Gallup poll and away they go, but you, you went pretty deep with the research, just so people get a context for our conversation. Sure. I mean, one of the really exciting things in social science right now, which is where I do most of my work, is that over the last 10 years or so, we've really experienced a revolution in data. You know, more data was collected in 2015 than all previous years of human history combined. Um, And we're now kind of outpacing that record every month. So there's just a ton of data out there. And social science used to be kind of data poor. We wanted to ask questions like, you know, how do people become polarized? Usually what we do is we do something like the Gallup poll you just mentioned. We'd survey, you know, thousand people, maybe a couple thousand people. And, you know, we could only afford to do that once or twice a year, most of us. And, you know, there's inherent limitations to, to that type of polling that make it hard to make, you know, you know, um, sort of solid conclusions about what's going on often. And so many of us start to think like, hey, can things like social media data be repurposed to maybe sort of start to replace polling in ways of understanding, you know, the, the, the public and, and what's going on out there? 
And, you know, sure enough, for the last 10 years, a lot of us have become, you know, really bullish on the idea that social science is really kind of entering a golden age. We can study these things with, for example, new kinds of experiments. So in, 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 um, you know, in my book, I introduce uh, bots as a tool for doing experiments on echo chambers. Um, you know, we can study millions of tweets in seconds. I mean, it's really revolutionary. So above all, you know, it's just an exciting time to, to do research because there's so many new possibilities. Yeah. And you also did in-depth personal studies. Like, did you visit actual users in their homes as well? You know, because of some issues related to the you know, confidentiality of our research subjects, we didn't actually enter their homes. Okay. But, you know, there again, you know, social media and the Internet provide us with a lens. We, we did talk to them at great length, which is one thing, you know, often like when people who are you know, into data science like me get massive amounts of data, they just start throwing computer algorithms at it to try to make sense of it. And one thing that became clear pretty quickly when we started crunching numbers is we actually had to sort of meet people where they're at and understand what are the fundamental motivations people have for using social media. And that's something that kind of gets left out of the story a lot, right? It's Facebook's fault or it's, you know, Trump's fault or Biden's fault, or maybe it's Fox News's fault or CNN's fault. But really, you know, we haven't asked this fundamental question, which is sort of what motivates us to log in each day. And if you want to get that kind of data, you really need to go out and talk to people. And so we we conducted lengthy interviews with with hundreds of Americans on, on, on both sides of the spectrum. Um, and that's where, you know, we really started to find the sweet spot in research where we can look at things from like 30,000 feet and we can see patterns and say six million tweets. But we can also tell you a story about, you know, the time someone interacted with a troll or, you know, the time when, um, you know, a troll turned out to be uh, not who we thought he was um, in, in the case of one kind of prominent, uh, you know, person who sticks in my mind, a sort of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde character that we discovered through our research. Hmm. Yeah. And that's what I thought was so interesting because you are analyzing millions of data points and yet you're also, we're also meeting Janet, we're meeting Bob, we're meeting, these are pseudonyms for real people, but you know, you've got some pretty interesting psychographics behind the people who are driving division online. So um, one of the things I think you identify is that it's a very small percentage of people who are driving the extreme division online. Can you explain what that means and what the stats are behind that? Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, many of us log on to Twitter and, and my guess, Carrie, is you're the type of person who follows the news pretty closely, you know, reads Twitter to kind of take stock of what's going on. Right. Um, and I do too, but you and I are sort of the exception to the rule, right? Most people don't want to be bothered by politics. You know, we, you know, Americans have, you know, sort of a million different ways of avoiding talking about politics because it's <laughs> uncomfortable, it's divisive and, 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 you know, complicated. Right. And so when we log on to Twitter and we see the divisiveness and we see, you know, people arguing and the, the volatility, we can pretty quickly start to conclude that, wow, you know, things are much worse than we thought they were. You know, everybody's even angrier than I thought. But what many people don't realize is that the, the people generating that type of uh, content, you know, the vitriolic content we're all too familiar with, they're a tiny, tiny part of the social media universe. So about 6% of Twitter users generate about 76% of the content about politics. And that 6% of Twitter users, in the US anyways, have very extreme views. And so what this does is create what I call the social media prism. 
It makes mm. us confuse extremists who are very active on the platforms with sort of typical members of the other political party. And that makes us all feel much more polarized than we really are. Yeah, that when I read that, that really surprised me. Because you're right, it dominates your feed. And you just see people back and forth. It's like a ping pong game, a really bad ping pong game. And you compare that. Do you, and I know this isn't the scope of your research, but it also seems like the news has become a lot more polarized as well. That, like you said, Fox versus CNN, it's like, it's not just the news, it's the angle on the news, it's the polarization. Um, comment on that, Chris? Yeah, sure. You know, for a long time now, even before social media, Many of us have been worried about, you know, news, especially cable news in the U.S., you know, polarizing people. If we go back, way back to say 1960s and the 1970s in the U.S. anyways, we had, you know, basically three large networks, CBS, ABC, mm -hmm. NBC. And if CBS decided that they wanted to really lay into a Republican president, well, they might lose some of their Republican audience, right? Or, or vice versa for, say, a, you know, a, a liberal candidate or a liberal, uh, you know, president. Now, what changed in the 1980s is cable news exploded, and all of a sudden you have these markets where people not only can afford to offend, right, because they're trying to bite off a smaller chunk of the news market, um, but they're actually incentivized to say more extreme mm. things because that's how they're winning their audience. What happened since the 1980s? Well, unfortunately, those, those sort of fringe stations became the largest players in the field. And so... Quite obviously, media has a large role, even long before social media came along and polarizing us. Hmm. So um, you found a very interesting personality type behind the kinds of people that 6% who are driving all the extremism online. Um, I think you call it a social profile. You say most of them lack status in real life and try to find it online. Give us an idea who is lurking behind the anger that we see on our feeds. Sure. Well, you know, like the people I met in the research for this book, you know, I mean, these are just tragic characters. You know, in the book, I write mm. about a guy whose, you know, wife passed away three years earlier. He lost his job, used to work on Wall Street. You know, his wife had a pre existing condition and that bankrupted them. And now, you know, when we met him, he's living in a Motel 6 um, and he's, you know, mm. waking up and falling asleep to Fox News every day, you know no social connections, no, you know, no real meaningful social connections in, in the real world, so to speak. And, you know, just profoundly lack status, you know, and this is earlier, we were talking about um, you know, what are the motivations of social media users. And a lot of people think of social media, well, that's where, you know, social media is where we go to get information, or maybe it's where we go to have a laugh or look at cute cat pictures or whatever it is that, that floats your boat, right? But, and that's certainly many of us do those types of things. But I think that social media is also fundamentally recasting the way we develop our identities. So I'll give you some extreme cases, um, and then we can kind of come back to, you know, the majority. Yeah. But, you know, we, so these people like the guy I just mentioned, you know, um, you know, we all crave a sense of belonging. We all want to fit in, right? It's what makes us human. We, you know, you know, from, from an early age, we learn to look at ourselves through the eyes of others. It's what makes us distinctly human. And so, you know, if we, you know, constantly struggle to achieve some kind of sense of purpose and belonging in our offline lives, you know, maybe we have an unsatisfying career or we don't, you know, never were able to start a family or whatever it is. Well, social media becomes a kind of refuge. You know, I can, I can throw out messages almost like sonar out into the ether and see what comes back. And, you know, often 
um, what people experience pretty quickly is they can get a lot of new likes, new followers, all sorts of kinds of, you know, social media status um, by saying extreme things. Um, mm. You know, in some cases, these are people who are just frustrated, you know, maybe really upset at, you know, former President Trump or former President Obama. Um, in other cases, though, these are people who are hiding in plain sight. And one of my favorite, um, you know, examples from the book is a guy that we call Ray. And, you know, when we first met Ray on the phone, nicest guy. I mean, you know, just mm. polite, you know, you know, said, goes out of his way to say he gets along with everybody, never talks about politics, you know. Um, sounds like a nice, nice fellow. And then we go to look at his online persona. And I was shocked to discover that this is one of the most prolific trolls I've ever seen in, in 10 years of researching this stuff. It turns mm. out that, you know, Ray, despite, you know, playing this very, you know, polite, even deferential guy in everyday life, you know, he undergoes a sort of nightly transformation from sort of Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde. And I think he does that because he's created an alternative source of status for himself among, you know, people who share his extreme political views, which, by the way, became even more extreme the more time he hung out in those places. Hmm. So this is the part that really got me, Chris, because you say you meet these people, they're really nice men and women, you know, they would invite you in, have a cup of coffee, you know, wave to their neighbor. And yet they they log in and they become this raving, angry, um, cussing, furious person. It's almost, it almost feels like a split personality. Like what what's going on? Yeah, I think, you know, we're used to, you know, if we meet each other in person, right, we can pretty quickly start to look at each other's you know faces, get some kind of you know, sense of whether what we are doing is being appreciated by other people, right? People smile, or maybe, you know, I guess people don't throw tomatoes on podcasts, Carrie, maybe you tell me, but, but you know, you get <laughs> not so yeah, not, <laughs> tough to do, but we, um, you know, we get some kind of signal. And the problem with social media is the signals we get are just profoundly distorted, right? If I say something really extreme, and, you know, I might get, you know, dozens of likes, you know, who are the people, you know, um, liking that content? Are they, you know, typical social media user or they or are they just sim simply a small cabal of extreme users or conversely if i say something that i think is very measured and moderate and productive and it gets zero likes you know then i might wrongly conclude that nobody's listening and that you know i might as well give up and so these are orthogonal problems and um you know the one very much causes the other the rise that small tiny group of people who tend to dominate conversation they also ruin it for the moderates um, who are really in a position to move the debate back to a productive position. Well, your argument is that most people are moderates, and I would fit into that category, I would say, at least compared to a guy like Ray, I would be a moderate, right? Most people are somewhere in the middle, a little bit right, a little bit left, a little bit centrist, whatever that happens to be. What if 80% of people are moderates, why is 80% of our feed not moderate? Well, I think the answer is just moderates have no incentive to post to social media, especially about politics. So the Pew Research mm -hmm. Center is, you know, a fine research outfit that does a lot of, you know, uh, yearly surveys on social media behavior. They recently asked people, you know, whether they've ever been harassed online. And then among those people, they asked, you know, well, what were you harassed about? What were you talking about? The number one reason people were harassed online was for expressing their political views in the United States. So, you know, when you think about it, you know, um, you've got a happy life, you know, you like your, your job, you like your church, you like your, you know, your friends, right? 
why mess it up by going there, you know, by going into politics and say, making Thanksgiving dinner really awkward, you know, um, when you could just talk about each other's kids or, you know, keep it apolitical. We hear that a lot. But, you know, so there's a few forces. One is, you know, we fear, I think, sort of persecution, right? You, you don't want to say something political if you, for example, worry it might, you know, get you in trouble at work. Other people are quite, you know, scarily harassed. So another story that sticks with me from the book is a woman um, who I call, um, um, who I call Maria and she, uh, or sorry, Sarah. And Sarah is, um, you know, a really moderate Republican, um, you know, true, you know, true to form. She is, you know, she, re- she even reads the New York Times. She reads the New Yorker, you know, consumes liberal media, went to an Ivy League college. And her conservative views sort of largely come from her father's, um, you know, career as a police officer in New York City. But she's also half Puerto Rican, half Jewish. And so she has just remarkably nuanced views on divisive issues like race and policing, right? Thing that, you know, we really need to get figured out in, in the United States. And yet you'll never hear her talk about them on social media. Why? Well, you know, when we first met her, we, we asked her the same question we ask everyone, which was like, tell us about the last time you used social media. What happened? She said, well, I was up late one night and a post by the National Rifle Association came through my feed simply saying, you know, it's something, something fairly innocuous in the landscape of America's gun debate. It's everyone's right to own a gun, something like that. And she noticed that a bunch of sort of liberal uh, trolls had been piling onto the tweet you know, um, harassing uh, people who tweeted it and retweeted it. And she simply replied to say, you know, hey, my husband owns a handgun. You know, he's got a license and he practices at the local firing range. Mm -hmm. Again, pretty innocuous, right? And within minutes, she tells us that uh, those same trolls had visited her profile page, discovered that she had kids and written, we hope your kids find your gun and shoot you. You know, that's the kind of experience that all too many people have. And it's really off-putting, right? It, it, never mind losing your job. Once your kids get involved, many of us just yeah. totally disengage. What? It, yeah, I was going to say, what's the incentive to ever go back and say anything on that again? Yeah, exactly. And that's that's where the incentive structure is misaligned, right? We built a platform for advertising. We built a platform to help people say the most sensational, crazy thing and get as many eyeballs on it as possible. We did not build the platform to try to bring people together. Remember that Facebook was originally created or sort of grew out of a platform that allowed college students to rate each other's physical attractiveness. Instagram, a lot of people don't know, was originally called Bourbon, and it was designed to facilitate alcohol-based gatherings. YouTube and TikTok, obviously created to share humorous videos, hardly the sort of, you know, fulcrum of democracy that we might want to see if we were going to actually... Uh, design technology to bring people together. So yeah, we need to hmm. we need to change the incentives in order to get more moderate people into the conversation and to turn down the volume of the extremism. So on the one hand, you've got people who have no life um, finding their identity on social media and getting rewarded for the more extreme views they have, whether that's left or right or even socially extreme. Right, people who say outrageous things tend to get rewarded. So you have that. Then you have moderates who are like, I don't even know how to debate this. Or when I said something reasonable, people threatened my children and they're they're out. So they're tapping out. Um, one of the most shocking bits, and this is what really popped my little theory, my pet theory, is when it comes to echo chambers. 
right? The idea is, well, I follow conservative people, so therefore I become more conservative, or I follow liberal people, so therefore I become more radically liberal. And you're like, that's actually not true. And experiments have been made, and I would have sworn on a stack of Bibles, if you oppose a right-wing person to more moderate left-wing views, they would be like, oh, I'll see this in a different way. That is not what the research shows at all. Am I right in that? Yeah. You know, I think that's what we all want to happen because then there'd be a very simple solution, yeah. right? We'd go to a Mark Zuckerberg, you know, we'd go to Elon Musk if he takes over Twitter and we'd simply say, hey, take us out of our echo chambers, mm-hmm. right? It's that easy. It's, you know, you're allowing us and encouraging us to self-segregate, right? Well, in 2017, you know, I shared this view. I was, in fact, so convinced of that, that I designed a study to try to test it out um, with about eight other um, social scientists and computer scientists. Um, we recruited a bunch of Americans, about 1,200, to complete a survey about their views. We asked them about all sorts of stuff, you know, climate change, um, you know, religion, all sorts of different things. All the easy ones. And, yeah. Yeah, all these ones, right. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, uh, several days later, we invited them to follow a bot that we created that we told them would simply retweet 24 messages a day. We didn't tell them what it would retweet. We only told them that it would be tweeting. And we told them that they could earn money by correctly answering questions about what the bot was, was tweeting about. So gradually over the next week, we started to turn up the volume of messages from the opposing party in these people's feeds. And again, the hope was Republicans see the Democrats and they're going to, you know, maybe move to the middle a little bit and, and Democrats see the Republicans and they're supposed to move to the middle a little bit. And instead we saw almost exactly the opposite. So nobody became more moderate. Um, uh, Democrats became a little bit more liberal, not a little bit more centrist and Republicans became a lot more conservative when they followed um, Democrats. So, you know, it, it, it was not the result that we wanted to see at all. So, yeah, this is this is really perplexing because you're like, huh, I thought it would be a town hall debate. Is that because we're not seeing people eyeball to eyeball with all the nuance, do you think, because the interaction is digital, uh, because it's an isolated experience? Like, what are the reasons behind why that exposure to other views actually hardens and ex- extremifies that's not a word but you know what i mean <laughs> I it makes me more extreme yeah right why, yeah, why does I that mean, do that to you it's a great question you know um earlier you described social media as a ping pong match and i think that's a that's a good analogy but i think maybe an even better one is one that mm. that my friend john height likes to use in, in this recent piece in the atlantic he said it's as if you know everybody got a nerf gun and you, in around 2015 and since then we've all been shooting each other right <laughs> And the reason I like this analogy is that social media is not about productive conversation and the sort of town hall that you're describing. Right? It's about winning. Mm. It's about taking down the other side. And so paradoxically, when we step out outside our echo chamber, what we see is not the measured, balanced moderation of, say, uh, David Brooks or, you know, um, a Steve Bullock, um, you know, centrist governor of, of Montana. You know, instead, we see. Ted Cruz calling Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez a socialist and all sorts of other unkind, you know, unkind things, right? And so what that does is sort of taps into our instinct to, to pick sides, to choose an identity, and or or, you know, for better or worse, avoid politics altogether. Hmm. What other surprising findings did you find in your research? 
You know, another one that really surprised me was misinformation. So, you know, going back five, six years, is you know, so many of us have watched things really deteriorate. It really seemed like the echo chamber was a big part of it. It seemed like misinformation was a big part of it, especially when you learned, um, like so many of us did around 2017, that, uh, you know, countries, you know, enemy countries like Russia had been launching these, you know, um, years long campaigns to further polarize and divide us. And that sounded plausible, right? I mean, sure, Mm -hmm. they could get on and stoke the fires of a, you know, argument between a Black Lives matter uh, activists and a blue lives matter activist or something like that like you know that that explains a lot right mm-hmm. um it turns out that you know at least in the case of that campaign um you know first of all very few people saw misinformation far fewer than most people realize most of the people who saw it incidentally were over age 65 so that's another interesting story but the, mm. the most interesting story i think is that um those who saw it didn't really change their views very much in fact, we couldn't we couldn't detect any significant changes in the attitudes and behaviors of people who had interacted with IRA accounts that we had been tracking for some time. And paradoxically, this may be because they were already some of the more extreme people on the internet. In other words, their views are so extreme they couldn't change anymore. And that all of this interaction with the Russian bots, surprisingly, occurred within the echo chamber. So earlier I said, you know, Echo chambers are less common when they realize when than we realize, but they they actually are very common among uh, that small group of very active people. And so, somewhat paradoxically, the echo chamber might have actually quarantined some of the spread of misinformation by kind of you know um, keeping it um, within this one small group of very um, now now these people you know their words can have an impact. So I'm not saying misinformation doesn't matter at all, but that it probably doesn't understand explain the lion's share of polarization that we've been seeing in the last few years. Yeah. And that's why your research was so unsettling to me, right? It's like, okay, some of my theories are going up in flames. Let's talk about the algorithm a little bit more. What does it, and I know it changes every day, literally Google's always updating it. So is Instagram. So is Meta. Twitter is always tweaking the algorithm, but as a rule over time, what does the algorithm reward? What does it penalize? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that these things are dynamic. They're changing every day. They're even changing for each one of us, right? So they're responding to our our individual behavior. Um, And they use, you know, various forms of artificial intelligence um, that, you know, experts like to call uh, black box models. So what this means is we dump a lot of data into something to try to figure out like what ad to show someone on social media or maybe what content, if I'm a social media company, to show someone to keep them on my platform, right? Um, and the model, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out with enough data. The problem is we don't know what, why the model is suggesting things. It's a black box. Um, it's something mm. that's, you know, at the forefront of a lot of st- research and in artificial intelligence. What we can sort of disentangle when we look at large groups of people is that it seems to be that most of the algorithms are rewarding posts that get a lot of engagement. So, you know, if Carrie, you know, you say a bunch of hateful things about another podcaster, right? Your your followers are gonna, you know, start sharing that, and then it's all of a sudden the other podcasters' followers get involved. I, I'm just kidding. I don't think you'd do that kind of thing. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Mm, haven't done that yet. Yeah. but yeah, I get the point. I right, get the point. Right. Um, that's the thing that's going to get the engagement, right? And so what that does is then it ensures that we see more of that type of content at the top of our continued uh, social media news feeds rather than the sort of more you know, productive, moderate content that we were talking about before. And so over time, the algorithms sort of reward people saying increasingly extreme things. So the algorithm 
are you saying is sort of agnostic politically or philosophically? It doesn't matter whether I'm right or left, but I know that if I'm a little bit more extreme, I'm going to get more engagement, get more likes, get more retweets, get more reposts, more shares. And the algorithm goes, oh, good, this has increased usage. So because usage is up, that's good for business. So we will now promote this post. Yeah, that's mostly it. But there's a little bit of a comp. I just want to add a little wrinkle to what you said. You said it's you said it's apolitical. Yeah, please do. And there's a really now we don't know much about this yet. You know, we are we're still early in the story of studying all this, and it's hard to study algorithms because we need to cooperate with social media companies to do it, and they have all sorts of reasons not to want to cooperate with researchers like me. But Twitter released a really interesting study uh, last year. Now, we've all heard Elon Musk and many other people say that Twitter is is discriminating against conservatives, right? That they are sort of doing too much content moderation. Mm-hmm. They kicked Trump off the platform, right? We've had a long debate about this for a long time. And so Twitter did an audit of its algorithms and they, they, were, they were trying to figure out, is it actually shadow banning conservatives as has been, you know, kind of, you know, bandied about in, in, in so many conversations on this topic? Um, or is it, you know, or is it neutral? And what they discovered, again, huge surprise, so many huge surprises in this research, they found it was actually amplifying conservatives. That's right, amplifying conservatives. You know, it shocked me too, right? This was supposed to be such an obvious thing. You know, Elon has told us that this is what's going on. This research, which was not only done with thousands of people in the U.S., but also five or six other countries uh, throughout Western Europe, found that in all but one country, Germany, um, Twitter's algorithms were boosting conservative views. Now, let's go back to that engagement question, right? What boosts engagement is when lots of people, uh, you know, like, uh, retweet, but importantly, comment. So let's think about this for a second. If, you know, we have a couple of, you know, people, let's say on the right saying some extreme things, all those people on the left who then pile on and say, you know, that's rubbish and that, you know, we, we don't like this for that reason or this reason or other, they think they are correcting the record in in the public uh, sphere, right? They think they are um, correcting these misguided claims, right? Really what they're doing is boosting it, not just in the United States, but across a lot of other, other countries. You see this kind of pathology of the left on social media. Oh, so when you go in to correct, you're actually boosting. So if you're a liberal and you go in and say, no, I disagree entirely, you're actually boosting the conservative platform. And I guess it works conversely as well. If you're the conservative correcting some crazy Democrat in your view, then you're also boosting the Democrats' view. Probably, but we see conservatives doing that less often. I just want to add one last oh, little, okay. Got one it. last little clarification, which I don't want to leave your audience with the idea that say we should never try to miss you know correct misinformation. Now, there is a lot of emerging research that actually correcting misinformation can help. You know um, what we you know. Twitter can label something as misinformation or Facebook can label something as misinformation. But depending on your politics, you're not going to believe that, right? Uh, if you if you say are skeptical that Twitter is really politically neutral, you're not going to believe any of their flags, right? But if your friend who shares your political you know, views has says, you know, hey, Carrie, this is actually misinformation, you know, you just, you, you know, you need to know and tell all your friends, right? That has a much more scalable impact. So I don't want to leave people with the, imp- you know, with the impression that you should never try to, you know, correct the record. But that anger, that anger on top of anger on top of anger, that's the really corrosive part of, of the algorithm story. So does the algorithm detect emotion? You know, again, like we wouldn't know. 
because it's a black yeah. box. And this is the really scary thing, right? We're, we're entering this moment where we're talking about how to regulate social media, right? You know, Senate, mm. amongst many other things, has been discussing this for, for the last year, and we've really made some progress. Uh, and, you know, one of the questions is, well, you know, how's the algorithm work? And we've now had, you know, people, you know, witnesses testifying from multiple social media companies who essentially get up there and say, we don't know. Right. That's a pretty scary answer when you see, you look at some of the things at stake, right? Like, you know, uh, a lot of people were worried about the future of democracy at the risk of hyperbole, right? So how do we, um, you know, how can we be sure that the algorithm isn't, isn't contributing to it? Here again, another surprise for you, Carrie, in the research, there's a story out there that what's happening is, okay, so yeah, we're, we're, we're doing this, you know, engagement-based, uh, you know, rent boosting, right? That's one part of the story. But another story out there is that, People log on to YouTube and they start watching, let's say, a cooking video. And then all of a sudden they see a video for Joe Biden or for Trump or whoever else. And they click on that. And then 15 minutes later, they're in conspiracy theory land. Right. And they were exactly. driven there. Yeah. They were driven there. The argument goes by YouTube's algorithm. Right. So I thought, again, another story I thought was super plausible. Turns out when, you know, social scientists, University of Pennsylvania and, and uh, many other great universities got together, they looked at 190 million YouTube viewing sessions and they found almost no evidence of the proverbial rabbit hole of extremism. So there we, there we go over five really? years. Yeah. Super shocking. So all these ideas, you know, they, they're, they're, they're just those stories. You know, I want them, I want them to be true because they'd be easy to fix, Right. Uh, we just need to change the algorithm. We just need to take people outside their echo chambers. We just need to do a better job of misinformation. My concern, though, is if we keep our efforts focused on those three uh, things, we're going to be disappointed with the outcome because the research suggests that those three things aren't contributing to the lion's share of polarization we're seeing on social media right now. Well, not to throw shade on anybody, but I'm pretty sure that argument is advanced by uh, that. What was that documentary a couple of years ago? The Social Dilemma? The Social Dilemma on Netflix. Social yeah. Dilemma, Tristan Harris. I've yep. heard him talk about that. And the research is showing, actually, that's probably not true. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Tristan to the extent that he's yeah, calling so attention. Yeah, so He's calling I'm attention trying to, to get the him on the podcast. problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's, uh, it's an important problem. Like he's, he's, he's sounding the alarm about, you know, um, you know, that, that technology has been not, has not been designed to improve, you know, the human condition, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's been designed to, you know, sort of amplify some of our worst instincts, right? Um, so, you know, even though he might not get the research perfectly right, like the mission that we all, this is an all hands on deck moment. To, you know, to fix this, I think is, is a really powerful one. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of people are, are very concerned with that. So um, where do we go from here? Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about solutions. So the echo chamber thing doesn't really pan out. The algorithm is a bit of a black box, which makes you a bit nervous when the top people testifying are like, Hey, we don't really understand it either. It's like, <laughs> okay, well, what is that? Right. Yeah. Uh, you've got a small percentage of users driving 73% of the extreme behavior activity viewpoints that we see online. So what do you do? Like just delete your social media account, go live in a cabin in the woods off the grid. People are talking about that more often. Like I'm just going to delete. And we have a lot of writers in our space, in the Christian space who are like, yeah, you know, limit the time on your phone, et cetera. But what do you do? I mean, Full disclosure, that's my preferred solution here, that we all go live in cabins in the woods. But I've come to conclude that that too won't work. And let me tell you why. 
Um, so first of all, you know, I've already mentioned that we've got this small group of extremists who are dominating the platforms and the moderates are disengaging. So you might say, okay, collective protest, all us moderates, we disengage and, you know, we, then the, these things crumble, right? That would be great if that were true. But we've seen time and again that people who promise to leave social media come right back. So let me give you one of my favorite examples from our research. You may remember, this is about five or six years ago, delete Facebook was sort of a movement. You know, people oh, yeah. like, you know, Will Ferrell, the comedian and Elon Musk were saying, you know, let's all get off Facebook. It's just, it's garbage, right? And so for one week, the top Google search is how to delete your Facebook account, right? Pretty, pretty standard when celebrities get involved, big things happen. Hmm. What happened two weeks later? Well, one of the top searches is how to undelete your Facebook account, right? Um, so, so we know that people can't leave. And so the in, sort of interesting question is, why is that? Well, one, for young people, it's the world that they grew up in. It's the world that they live in. Now, we might not like that. You know, I have kids and I'm deeply concerned about um, letting them use social media. Don't plan to let them use social media until they're at least 14 years old. And even then, I'm a little scared, frankly. But um, I also recognize that, you know, social you know, interaction is happening online. It's going to eventually it's going to happen in the metaverse, whatever that is, um, you know, and, and um, you know, young people use social media in droves as much as, you know, 80 percent of their time spent on social media. Now, that's shocking and concerning, but I don't think we can just snap our fingers and say, hey, you know, look at me, kid, instead of playing that Pokemon game, come on to this forest in the woods that, you know, I built, you know, like the, 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 this, this cabin in the woods that I built, right? It's not, it's not going to happen. Um, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, we need the thoughtful, moderate people to stay on social media to fight the good fight, right? If, if more of us leave, it's all, the problem's only going to get worse. So it's a, it's a seductive idea, right, that there's a simple solution here. We just need to protest. Unfortunately, our protest doesn't get registered as such, right? It only, I fear, makes the problem worse. So we got to we got to figure out how to make social media better rather than leave it. That's my uh, that's my spiel. Yeah, and if you imagine a delete TikTok campaign with Gen Z right now, that would be disastrous. Unimaginable. Like it would just it just yeah. wouldn't work. It just wouldn't right. work. Like it's it's right. it's got us. Yep. And so we live in this world. And you know, Chris, you make a really interesting point. We've had this discussion in my little company. So we have a the privilege of serving millions of leaders a year through our online platform, the podcast, my website, other things that we do, which is, which is a real privilege. And we make that argument about like, we're trying to craft a place for the good people to live on the internet. So one little stab at that is my team and I started the art of leadership Academy. And it basically well, it's got all of our courses, all our premium content, like a lot of membership sites, but it is also, it's also got its own social media feed and it is troll free. So mm -hmm. basically it's a pay to play, not quite like Patreon. We keep it very reasonably priced and the quality of conversation is so good on it. Yeah, It's like, it's, it feels like this. It's not yeah. like I'm sparring at you, you, you're sparring at me. We got a hot take here that's like... Right. It's just like real people going, hey, I'm really struggling with some staff in this area. Can anyone help me out with this? And people are yep. like, oh, have you tried this? Or have you found this resource? Or here, read this right. book or take this unit of the course or whatever. Or um, guys, I'm really tired. What do you suggest for rest? Oh, you know what? We do X, Y, Z. Like the way normal people talk. Do you? Now, that's behind a paywall, very accessible paywall. But we're loving it. We're going to probably, by the time this airs, we're pushing a 1,000 leaders inside the academy. 
We are pumped for the future. We see it a place where 3,000, 10,000 leaders can gather. And we're going to do our best to keep it troll-free. And it's not controlled by an algorithm. You get to determine what your feed looks like. So super encouraged about the Art of Leadership Academy. The question, I guess, becomes, is it possible that we could create that kind of environment out in the public that isn't controlled by giant tech companies? Let me tell you, I've given you a bunch of like depressing research so far, but let me tell you why I'm optimistic about this particular point. You know, just today, I was just reading that Facebook is taking steps to emulate TikTok. You know, think about that. Three years ago, TikTok was, you know, know, almost nothing. And now it's the most popular domain in the world, right? Before Facebook was around, right, there was something that us old folks remember called MySpace, right? And MySpace was once seen as invincible. And, you know, before that, there was Friendster and we could go on and on and on, right? Every two or three years, we seem to have a, you know, collective, you know, exodus from whatever's the, you know, the, 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 you know, the platform of the day, right? And so it gives me hope that we're early in the story of social media and we have some time to figure this out, right? We don't have a lot of time. We got big problems we have to solve yesterday, but, um, you know, we, we, we have an opportunity. I think a lot of people are unhappy on social media. A lot of people just don't see a lot of positives in social media. They see all, all the sort of negatives that you're talking about. And in my book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, you know, one of the main prescriptions I make is that we need to ask this question, like, if we could redesign social media from scratch, knowing what we now know, you know, where would we begin? Hmm. And I'm not at all surprised to hear that your academy and your, you know, you know, upstart social media, um, you know, uh, component there is doing well because it has a purpose. Yeah. Right? It, it, its goal is to produce learning and, and meaningful interactions and all these are right. What's the purpose of Facebook? What's the purpose of Twitter? People it say it's to make money. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a charitable one. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's um, it doesn't have a purpose. We don't know what we're supposed to do on Facebook and Twitter. So should should we be surprised that it's devolved into kind of leaderless, you know, demagoguery and you know, celebrity, you know, micro celebrity seeking and toxic political content that we've all become, you know, inured to? You know, no, we shouldn't be surprised, right? We should if we start from the beginning. You know, we've been sort of trashing algorithms a little bit in our discussion so far, but I also want to mention that the space of possibilities with the algorithm is largely untapped too. So right now we are incentivizing the extreme people to say angry, you know, hateful things. What if instead algorithms looked for content that resonated across political divides? Doesn't even have to be politics. It could be any kind of social divide. It could be Coke and Pepsi, you know, whatever it is. Find the content that lots of different types of people are liking and put that up in the the beginning of my newsfeed. You know, in that way, we can build social media that optimizes for consensus instead of for division. And that's an idea that, you know, many of these companies, Facebook, Twitter, could implement, you know, really easily, right? It's not a hard uh, model for them to build. Um, they just don't have the incentive to do it right now. So I do think we're going to need a new platform. We're going to need one that sort of learns from the mistakes of, you know, the Facebooks, the Instagrams, the Twitters. It's going to take time. We're going to see a lot of false starts. But over time, you know, especially with the prospect of government regulation and, you know, the sort of ever, you know, ever-present promise of innovation in this sector, I think we're going to see something better. I really do. I haven't followed the story of government regulation particularly closely, uh, and I know it's still in process, but do you have any idea what that regulation would look like, Chris? 
Well, it's complicated. You know, the, the current debate is about a section of, of, of the law called, you know, Section 230, which protects uh, social media companies from liability uh, for, you know, toxic, hateful, or libel content that's, that's kind right. of spread on the, on the platform. So you can't right? sue them, right? You can't sue Facebook, you can't sue yeah. Twitter right now. And, you know, th- they did that for a good reason. They did that because it, they thought at the time it would practically s- shut down the internet. It would stalt all the growth of these platforms and they needed this kind of legal, um, you know, legal protection. Uh, a lot of people no longer think that's true. A lot of people now think that, you know, social media companies should be held to a higher standard. They're making, you know, ungodly amounts of money. They are, um, you know, there's some evidence that, you know, they're really, you know, um, dividing us. And so so why shouldn't they be held held up to scrutiny? So, you know, a lot of the debate goes around, you know, well, they need to do a better job moderating content. You know, they, you know, so if someone says something hateful, we shouldn't even have to see that, right? It should just get taken right off can imagine this gets complicated when politics get involved. What does hateful mean, right? And we have so many, so many examples now, right? Okay, so then we say, oh, maybe not hateful, but then let's say calls to violence, right? Yeah. But then, you know, you know, is a death threat really a death threat or is someone just trying to be darkly funny, right? Yeah, these are, there's all these edge cases that, you know, are actually really hard when the rubber hits the road. The other, the other thing you'll hear is, you know, people will say, well, you know, if we, you know, make a higher bar for this type of content moderation, then we're paradoxically going to reinforce Facebook's monopoly because they're the only company that can afford to do that level of content moderation. Now, people say that about every kind of government regulation, so I don't think that's strictly true. But these are some of the debates that are coming up. Another big one is is data transparency. So, you know, earlier I was saying we don't know what the algorithm is doing. One of the things I'm most optimistic about in the regulation space is that we will actually get some independent audits of, of the algorithms, not so much because of the U.S.'s uh, political process, which is a little bit stalled like so many other um, issues right now, but because Europe is way ahead of us. And just like, you know, when California puts in a new regulation, it affects the whole, you know, the whole market. Same with Europe. You know, that's why we have to cook those annoying allow cookies on every other website now, right? Yeah. Thanks, Germany. Uh, yeah, you know, and now why the iPhone charger is disappearing, right? right? And you have right, to right, have right. a standard USB-C exactly, charger yeah. for yeah, all yeah, your yeah. devices. Pretty soon we'll all be yeah. using the metric system over here. Watch out. You know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so so I do think, though, that they're, they're going to lead the charge. And, you know, already they've passed uh, something called the Digital Services Act, which has sort of outlined a lot of this. And I think will make Elon Musk's, you know, proposals about fixing Twitter a heck of a lot uh, more difficult to implement. Hmm. Interesting. So a lot of our leaders, they deal with trolls online all the time. And I want to talk about online and in real life. So let's start with online and let's talk about not email. So social media, they get everything from bad Google reviews on their church, on their business to angry posts. Usually Instagram is a pretty friendly place, but Facebook can be mean. YouTube can be mean. Twitter is very mean. How do you recommend they respond to the trolls who show up digitally on their public platforms? I mean, I'm just going to give you an old piece of advice, but it's the best advice I know of, which is don't feed the trolls. You know, these people are attention starved, right? Their principal goal is to get some kind of reaction out of you. You know, even a, even a, uh, you know, a lot of people just fire back and insult at a troll, right? That's, that's the worst thing you can do. They want to upset you. They want to get you riled up. But even, you know, in a lot of times, uh, you know, good faith attempts to kind of correct the record can be counterproductive, right? Because that troll is just going to continue 
pushing buttons. That's that's what they're after, right? They're they're out there to impress their friends, to get more followers for harassing people like you. So number one bit of advice there is don't feed the trolls. But I think the other thing we really all need to work hard on, earlier I was talking about what tech companies you know, uh, can do, but I want to also talk about what we, the social media users, can do. So I do think there are a lot of things that we collectively can do to change these types of things. And the most important one is to learn to see what I call the social media prism. So, you know, we've been talking all throughout this conversation about this small group of people who ruins it for the rest of us, right? The most dangerous thing about social media, in my view, is when good people confuse those bad people as representative of the other side, right? And so we come mm. to conclude that everyone on the other side is, in, you know, implacable and unreasonable and all these other, you know, terrible things, when really we're just looking into this prism, right? We're just seeing this tiny little part of reality refracted back to us. And if we forget that, which we can also easily do, you know, I almost like, I almost want to encourage people to like, you know, have a sticky note on their, on their computer screen, social media prism, right? Um, remember that the first 10 posts you see on social media are not representative of what most people think. They are the angriest, most political, least civil people on social media in most cases. You know, so learn how to avoid trolls in the first place, but also learn how to have more productive conversations across political divides. You know, there's a ton of interesting research that I write about in the book. Um, you know, a lot of people think these conversations are going to be awkward and hard and difficult. and They're just going to get harassed and like, you know, on and on and on. But what we find in research is people, A, profoundly exaggerate how difficult um, and uncomfortable these conversations are going to be. And then once they have one of these conversations, they want to have a lot more. So there are strategies that we can, you know, incubate. It's not going to change things overnight. Um, but we got to remember that we're all voting with our like buttons. You know, we used to say vote with your wallet. Now we're voting with our like button, our retweet button, our, you know, our comment button. So just, just we all need to become more mindful social media users and realize that, you know, our behavior or lack of behavior, right, is, is going to contribute to the problem at scale. Right. So in other words, if you are not rewarding the moderate posts... That's also a problem. Like you should exactly. like the stuff if you're going to play. You should exactly. like the stuff that is reasonable, moderate, in the middle kind of. Exactly. If rather, you are, okay. you know, if you are a Democrat upset about you know this, uh, you know the the recent you know mass shootings in the country, and you see say a Tom Tillis get on social media and say, "Hey, we passed this piece of legislation." You might be tempted to say, well, it doesn't include everything I wanted, right? It doesn't include the assault ban, it doesn't assault weapon ban, whatever it is, right? Um, but that's actually a message that goes back to Tom Tillis, uh, the Republican senator from North Carolina, right? Um, and if he sees, hey, you know, I might peel off some moderate Democrats the more I do this, right? That's the kind of way that we're voting with our like buttons, right? We can decide to disengage. Then he might not realize that he's getting some, some you know, approval from people who don't share his politics. Um, we can tend, we can engage negatively. That has obviously, you know, um, you know, usually bad consequences. But above all, we don't want to just not engage um, because mm. when we see people bravely standing up on the other side, you know, we need to we need to empower them in many cases and, and you know, and thank them. Even. So just to go back to where we started at the beginning of the question. The best advice, if I get this right, for trolls is ignore, delete, ignore, delete and don't block, respond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a challenge for a lot of leaders, particularly for pastors. We have this idea that we can save everybody and rescue people. Mm-hmm. And your extensive research into trolls say it is not worth the fight. Is that fair? <laughs> not online anyways. I mean, you, you, you know, yeah. 
Yeah. Preachers have an uncanny ability to make a human connection, right? I don't, mm-hmm. I don't have that skill like, like, like you all do. But I, you know, having met a lot of these lonely people who, again, are social step outcasts, they just want to fit in. They just want to belong. They've just learned the wrong way to do it online. So I do think, you know, if you are getting harassed by a troll and you can, you know, shoot them a DM, a direct message and just say, hey, seems like you're upset about this. Why don't you mm-hmm. come to my church and let's talk about it? You know, I would never earlier I was saying we shouldn't all get off social media. I really believe that. But I would also never say that the type of in-person contact that we know is some of the most productive ways to, to overcome social divisions should be avoided. Right? We should still be doing that. We should maybe even be doing it more um, during mm. these troubled times. So I, I think that's the one the, the, the one sort of exception to that advice I'd give. If, if there is an opportunity to make contact in person, you might be surprised by the person you ultimately see. I've had it work once where there was a guy, we turned off comments on our my blog, my website earlier this year because it was just getting ridiculous. The The good people never commented. And to your point, all the people who are upset, harassed, angry about something, often not even the post, would leave their stuff online. <laughs> anyway, and that's why we moved it into a different platform where it's sure. rich, rewarding, and not everyone agrees, but it's great. Like it's well, like and, real combo. And the important thing, Carrie, is you made a place, you made a new environment where it's not fun for trolls to play, right? That's the Oh, Facebook, it's not fun. Twitter is a fun place for trolls to play. They have options, you know. So if we build these places where the goal is consensus, you know, the algorithms are rewarding consensus, not division. That's how we get rid of the trolls, right? We're never, it's a game of whack-a-mole everywhere else. We're going to continue to try to, you know, kick them off, stamp them out, but they're going to come right back as long as they're getting that that attention that we're all giving. Well, and they get to play for free. It costs them nothing and it gains them anything. If, you know, we talked about this, we haven't had it, almost a thousand people in, but, you know, if there was a troll who jumped in, we would have a private conversation with that person. And then if they still kept beating people up, we would give them their money back and ban them. Like you can block, block and ban. It's like, no, it's like, I look at it as our house, right? If, if you come over to my house, I might not agree with you. You might vote differently than me. You might say, you know, oh, I think I make better fish than you guys do or whatever. And maybe, well, he was a little socially awkward, but that's fine. He's a nice guy. But if you start like insulting my wife and punching me, uh, you're probably not going to get invited back. And at some point I might call the police. And is that is that a similar thing in that that you would say when you're moderating a platform or inviting people in? Yeah, let me just let me just flip that on its head for one minute, because you're absolutely right that we say things online that we would never say in person, right? Like, yeah. so, you know, that example, right? You know, people might make threats. They might say, you know, all sorts of socially undesirable things, especially if they're anonymous, right? Where where they can kind of hide behind the internet, right? And so you might say, and I, I sort of thought this for a long time too, like the problem is probably anonymity. You know, if we could just get people to, you know, everybody should be a real person online. You know, we should, um, you know, we should have ways of enforcing this, you know, and Facebook's pretty good at this, you know, for the most part, most people are who they, who they say they are Twitter, not so much, right. There's lots of anonymous accounts. And so, you know, I was sort of thinking, well, maybe that means that, um, you know, anonymity is just the problem, but we actually did a study of this. We, um, we paired Republicans and Democrats to anonymously discuss either gun control or immigration for about an hour on a platform that we built for social science research called Discuss It. Now, this is not a thing you can go use in the world. It was just a place we built for research. And we were expecting to see that when we put these people into these anonymous chats, that things would go haywire, right? People would be calling each other names. People would be you know, saying things they never say in person. 
Instead, once again, we were shocked and surprised by the results of the research. Putting people in these anonymous conversations actually reduced polarization. It made people come together, um, um, all sorts of different types of people. I'll give you an example. You know, we, we read through every transcript of every interaction on the, on the platform, and one that sticks with me is an African-American woman um, in her late 50s. Her son is a, is a cop, and, you know, she's been asked to have a conversation about gun control, and she doesn't know it. But she's talking to an NRA member, you know, assault weapon owning man from North North Dakota, right? Hmm. And on our platform, we say, you know, do you think the benefits of gun control outweigh the downsides? Right? We just ask them. That's all we do. We just say, have a conversation with this person. You don't know who they are. They don't know who you are. And I want to ask you, Carrie, like, imagine if this per- this conversation happened in person, right? You have all these people who are going to bring to that conversation all sorts of prejudices, right? The the, you know, one person's going to assume everybody, you know, the other, the other person thinks X, Y, and Z and vice versa. Right. But if you have that an anonymity, right, it's, it's interesting. You have the power to explore ideas that are maybe unpopular with your side outside the context of peer pressure. Um, and so maybe in some ways, anonymity is going to be mm. part of the solution. I would never say, Hey, we need to make all social media anonymous. I think that would be a disaster. But properly cultivated, you know, um, sites like there's a famous subreddit, you know, on the, on the site Reddit called Change My View. It's just anonymous discussion about politics. It's some of the most civil uh, debate about um, politics that I've seen on social media. So, again, you know, we all want these simple answers. You know, it's, it's the anonymity, it's the echo chamber, it's misinformation, right? It turns out it's complicated and we're going to be debating this for years and, and, and we're going to need we're going to need everybody all hands on deck, not just, you know, researchers like me, but, you know, tech entrepreneurs, leaders of, of you know, faith leaders, um, government, obviously. Um, and we really need to build the next generation of technology. And that's what we've been doing in the Duke Polarization Lab that I lead. If you're if your audience is interested, you can go to polarizationlab.com and try completely for free um, tools we built to help you implement insights from our research. So you can follow a bot that will expose you to that content that's getting liked by both Republicans and Democrats. Or you can learn how to spot trolls, or you can learn how to see the social media prism that I've been talking about. And we think that these things, if we could scale them, if we could actually implement them inside the platforms, or maybe even build a whole new kind of platform that's built on this evidence, that we could really start to move the needle. That's polarizationlab.com? That's right. Cool. Okay. Any other advice for leaders who are trying to cultivate a helpful approach in person and online? Any traps to avoid? Any things that it's like, oh, here's a best practice and you should definitely do this? Like, because I think most people are trying to create yeah. a civil and, conversation. And creates the important word there for me, right? Creative. Mm-hmm. What we need now is creativity. We are stuck trying to repair a system that's broken. We're asking questions like, you know, is the like button good or bad? You know, should we maybe have more content moderation or less, right? We're not asking fundamental questions like, could we create entirely new spaces that, you know, that, 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 you know, try out different models, right? Should we even, you know, read our posts one by one and, you know, kind of have to sift through all the hateful stuff to get to the good content, right? Are there other ways that technology could help? Um, you know, facilitate more productive conversations. There's a whole emerging science of this in this field that I come from called computational social science. We're using machine learning to try to, you know, build these algorithms that will actually, again, promote more 
uh, civil discussion. Um, and, you know, the market for this is huge, right? It's not just Facebook and, and, and Twitter. It's any, anybody who has a blog, anybody who has the type of platform you do, Carrie, right? Um, you know, this is the type of technology we're all going to need uh, to try to figure out how to make, you know, our platforms a less fun place for trolls to play and to create useful, you know, content that people really want or need. You know, it's stuff that we can learn from, stuff that we can laugh at that's, you know, productive, right? Instead of the sort of, divisive stuff that's circulating on, around pretty much every major platform right now. So a lack of creativity is what I'm worried about. I guess I would. Well, you know, it's interesting because we wanted to build a membership site and make it easier for leaders to get premium resources. And we decided to add the community, not as an afterthought, but it was relatively late in the game. And I think what we've discovered is that we may have stumbled on some secret sauce that we didn't even realize how good it would be until we actually got into it. And it's just nice to have civil conversations with real human beings who are trying to make a difference wherever they are. Yeah, now, Carrie, I got to ask, do, do podcast guests get free memberships on the platform or how's that work? We'll get you in. Can you we'll and I talk in. later? All right. Sounds yeah, good. you and I will talk <laughs> in. You can come on in. We'd love that, Chris. Uh, you know, because it's, it's just, you know, an engagement is relatively high, uh, like, We've got almost everyone is registered for the chat and we've got a couple of hundred real users. So 20, 25, 30% of the members are actually participating in the chat, which is in the conversation, which is good. And you don't have one of my pet peeves on a Facebook group. We still do Facebook groups is like Facebook decides what comments you're seeing. It's like, come on, can I just decide what comments I'm seeing? And then I got to click five buttons every time. And I'm always suspicious that the reason I have to click five buttons is it counts as a click and now they can tell their advertisers. Yeah. Is that too cynical or is that what's really going on on the public platform? No, I think platforms? that's part of it. You know, the real tragedy though, Carrie, is what? the research suggests even the advertising isn't working. So, you know, we, another really common idea out there is that, you know, micro-targeting advertising is absolutely blowing it up, you know, markets everywhere, right? That... You know, I see the this ad for some shoes and then I go buy them, right? Or, mm. you know, I get targeted by a political ad and I change my vote, right? A meta-analysis of dozens of studies now by people at Northwestern, the Kellogg School of Business, concludes that the average micro-targeted campaign has no effect. You know, so even that, right? Even that, they're selling snake oil, right? Mm. And now I want to ask you a question, you know, who better to try to convince us that their technology is all-powerful Right. And can shape our very attitudes and behaviors than the types of people who are selling that snake oil to advertisers. Right. Even that's the real tragedy. Even the advertisers aren't getting what they what they deserve out of it. Wow. Well, this is really, really rich. Maybe we'll see you inside the Art of Leadership Academy. Yes, that would be a lot great. of fun. So the book is called Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. I think it's a really important conversation. Uh, This is through Princeton University Press, but you teach at Duke, which is great. So if people want to learn more, obviously the book is great. And it's about, it's real research, about 120 pages of analysis and then data, 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 data and methodology, which is cool. But it's a relatively easy read. For those yeah, who are I really into tried it. to write it in a way that it, you know anybody could 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 appreciate it. I mean, you know, yeah. a lot of professors like me would write a book for you know twenty other professors. I didn't want to do that. I wanted this you know to be the beach book. I wanted it to actually have an impact on how people use social media. So I hope 
I hope your audience, you know, um, if they if they do decide to check it out, will enjoy that. Um, and you know, you don't have to suffer three pages of uh, you know Greek or or you know statistical methodology. I tried to keep it simple um, and really cut to the core, and also to tell stories, right? Like the ones we've been talking about today, the Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde character, the moderate who won't engage, right? These are the ways that I think we all really come to appreciate insights from data. So I hope you'll find a your your audience will find a good mix. Uh, well done. And if people want to connect with you online, the easiest place? Oh, shame to say, probably Twitter. Uh, uh, yeah. Chris underscore bail. Um, yeah. And, you know, but again, like, right, I'm worried if, if all of us thoughtful people leave, right, what's going to happen? It's going to get a lot worse. So that's why I'm there. And, and, you know, if you find me there, you'll see me, you know, tweeting about the latest research on polarization, latest research on computational social science, this new field, which is trying to fuse insights from data science with insights from psychology, sociology, and adjacent fields. You know, it's really an exciting time to be in this field. And I think we're really going to start to move the needle in all sorts of different industries, um, you know, communities, uh, faith communities, wherever you're a leader, um, you know, there's there's something here for you. Great. And polarizationlab.com as well, if you want more. It's great. Chris, thanks for spending time with us today. I really appreciated it. Hey, it's been my pleasure, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation. And it's interesting, the difference between what happens online and what happens on real life. And if you want more about that, well, you can get transcripts and also show notes with a few key quotes and all the links to things we talked about, including the Polarization Lab, by going to kerryneuhoff.com uh, slash episode 507. That's kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 507. We always provide those for you. So check out the show notes wherever you are listening to this podcast. And that will also give you the gateway into everything else I do. I write a blog. Uh, we have courses. I run the Art of Leadership Academy. And sometimes what happens in podcast world is you listen, but you never click. And if you click over, there is a whole wealth of resources there for you, most of them for free, and then a few really, really good premium products I would love to meet you inside of, uh, chief of which is the Art of Leadership Academy. So check it all out. Go to kerryneuhoff.com, episode 507. We'll get you to the show notes, and then that's sort of a gateway to everything else. Well, we got some great episodes coming up. Malcolm Gladwell, uh, I'm very excited about that conversation. Jeff Henderson, we've got Nona Jones, and so many others. But next time, it's Sam Collier. Sam and I catch up, and he talks about planting a church during a pandemic, why he started with Hillsong and decided to leave, replanting his church, and leading while bleeding. Here's an excerpt. For the leaders that have gone through stuff, which is which are a lot of us, um, here's, here's I'm just going to be really honest and real. Before a leader falls, they've had 30 chances. Mm-hmm. To get it right. They've had 30 meetings where people tried to talk to them. They've had 30 opportunities to fix it. They've had 30 grace-filled moments. Because here's what we know about God. I'm just going to, and I say this, I'm going to use a hood, some hood terminology. (laughs) God will ride with you and your imperfection as a leader for a long time. That's next time on the podcast. And again, if you subscribe, it just shows up automatically on your phone, on your devices. So wherever you get your podcast, make sure you listen to that. I've also got another podcast now called The Art of Leadership Daily. That's with me and Joe Terrell. And Joe takes an excerpt from this show and then shares it in a very short format, 10 minutes or less. 
every day, Monday to Friday. So it's a daily podcast, The Art of Leadership Daily. Make sure you check it out. Also want to thank our partners, Belay. You can get your free copy of Belay's latest book, Lead Anyone From Anywhere, by texting the word CARRY to 55123 today. That's C-A-R-E-Y to 55123. And Brushfire, join the 30,000 plus events that use Brushfire every year and get a $500 credit toward your first event by going to brushfire.com slash carry. That's brushfire.com slash carry. So I want to thank you so much for listening. Uh, I have, have you picked up the preaching cheat sheet yet? It has got something, I'm doing it for free, uh, giving to you for free. And what it does, it gives you 10 proven steps that will help you create a better message. I also give you a free teaching series. So if you're a pastor, or frankly, if you're a business leader who has to communicate, whether that's to your customers, your clients, your staff, cast vision, that kind of thing, you might find it helpful too. It'll help you streamline your communication. So the way you get it for free, go to preachingcheatsheet.com. It's easy to implement and it's a gift to you. Preachingcheatsheet.com. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We will catch you next time on the podcast, and I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership.